Welcome to Healthonomics, a podcast about health, economics, and policy. I'm your host, Ina Katsikas, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the economics department. Today, my guest is Mauricio Solorio. Mauricio is a second-year PhD student in the economics program at the University of Nevada, Reno. Mauricio, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. I'm very excited to have Mauricio here. We are both grad students in the same program. Um, so today we are talking about your experience in switching from one field to another, and that is switching from a position in engineering to a PhD in economics. Um, but before we get into that, tell me about your background in engineering and when you started your PhD in economics. Okay, so just a little bit about my background. I graduated in 2018 with a degree in mining engineering. Mining engineering is not a really common major, it's really specific. There are only 16 mining schools here in the country, and UNR has one of those that is one of the oldest mining programs here in the country. I graduated in 2018. I went and worked in San Francisco for about a year. I was doing a financial modeling for mining companies because I had a mining experience. And then after that, after a, a year or so working in San Francisco, I decided to come back to school because I was invited by the mining department to come back and help them out with a project that they were having with the U.S. Department of Energy. They were developing this uh, desalination facility and they needed someone with it, experience doing some economic modeling. So I had the experience from San Francisco. They told me, you know, come back. You want to pay for your studies. I didn't think it twice. And I decided to come back and do my master's in uh, mining. But when I was doing the master's in mining, that's when I uh, started taking econ classes because I've in mining, we, we were only required to take one uh, economics class, which was microeconomics. And as a mining engineer doing a techno-economic analysis for the U.S. Department of Energy was going to look really bad if I only had one econ class on my whole career. You know what I mean? Like, what is this guy doing in the project? So I told my advisor, you know, let me take some econ classes so it looks more legit on paper when when I uh, present this stuff, I can tell you, you know, I'm taking these classes and whatnot. So that's when I uh, decided to take macroeconomics with Fair Eco, and you were there in that class. I don't know if you remember. So when I, I remember my first time at that class, I was like, damn, this is intense. This is very intense. I just remember Fair Eco going at it with integrals and Lagrangians and uh, lambdas and all sorts of crazy derivatives. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> I remember yes. that class vividly. It was all math, but no numbers. <laughs> yes, yes, there, there are. A, there were, a, how do you say, X's and Y's and Y's everywhere, and I'm like, damn, I really like this. <laughs> Some kind of first love at first sight kind of stuff, you know. It's like I saw it, I'm like, wow, I never thought I was going to see an integral ever again in my life, and here I am. <laughs> That's funny. You know, I hear a lot. Uh, I hear very similar stories from other people. Everyone says, oh, I was never going to go into economics. And then I took one or two courses and it was love at first sight. And that was it for me. And um, that was it for me, too. I, I was going to be a journalism major. And then I took one econ course and I was like, oh, 
data science, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, yeah, so a lot of people, a lot of people say that. So I'm curious, um, why did you decide to switch to economics? I know you kind of said it was love at first sight, but switching from one field to another is a huge decision in someone's life. And so what other things factored into your, your decision? So I don't know if I, I ever told you this, but I was having some issues with my advisor in mining. I was not having a, a good time because I was working on the project and I realized that, that the project was not feasible at all. You know, I run hundreds of simulations and not, not in a single scenario, not in the most positive scenario, that thing was feasible. I was not comfortable with it because um, kind of what I was asked to change the numbers, you know, and that stuff over there was like, you know, I'm not going to do that. That's totally wrong. You know, is that we should not be doing that. We should present our findings. I've done it. We, I sat down with my advisor, we run the calculations and we find out that it was not feasible. So but my advisor was like, you know what? We should not present this information. We should omit this information. We shouldn't do that because we're gonna lose the grant and whatnot. And I was like, you know, this is not ethical. And at the moment I was talking to Federico about it and he told, you know what? We don't have any positions available. Like we don't have any funding for us to, to sponsor you on, on econ or a master's in econ because at that time I just wanted to do a master's. I didn't want to do a PhD. So that was on fall semester 2019, I believe. And then when 2020 started, uh, there was this girl in the PhD program. I don't know if you remember her. She was our TA for Federico's class. What was her name? You remember? She was a... Ganya. Ganya, yes. Yes, so she her. got married and left the program. You know, she left the program because she got married. She moved to Illinois or something like that. And all of a sudden, there was a vacancy. You know, all of a sudden, it was an empty spot. And Federico and Anna Sokolova, because Sokolova was a professor at uh, Macro, they were recommended me with Sankar. So Sankar sent me an email around March. And he's like, yo, I hear uh, that you have a tense situation in mining. This happened would you like to come and talk to me? So I went into his office and he's like, you know what? We have this opening. Do you want it? Do you want to do a PhD in economics? You want to pay for it? So I told Sanka, you know what? Just give me time to think about it. At that time, uh, the situation got even worse with my advisor in mining. And that's what pushed me to econ. So I was like, you know what? I actually like it. I think I'm good at it. So, you know, this opportunity just came out out of heaven, I'm going to take it. So I, I took it. And that's how I made that final decision to do the PhD in economics. So coming from your background in engineering, what is your main research interest in economics? Is it still like mining and environmental stuff? Or is there any overlap that you're bringing over from the mining and engineering field? You know, um, right now, my research, it's totally different. It has nothing to do with mining. And I was offered by Mehmet to do some mining stuff. But I had such a bad experience with mining that I decided, you know what? I'm done with mining. I don't want to see mining ever again in my life. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'm doing a lot of behavioral studies and actually liking it. I love it. But... Since I have a mining background, when I'm teaching, right now I'm teaching principles of microeconomics, I use mining examples uh, to, I don't know, to, um, to show my students 
how like mining companies are price takers. They're not powerful enough to dictate the price of gold and all that, you know? So I'm like coming from a mining background, I can tell you that like some minerals are scarce and some others are not pricing and all that stuff. So I use mining because that's something that I'm familiar when I'm teaching. So that I use examples of my previous uh, life per se. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I use very similar style examples for my students, but more healthcare oriented because that's my research interest. And I think students really enjoy getting a different uh, style of example so they can understand information better. Um, I'm curious, why do you think or would economics be attractive to someone in engineering? Because I've met numerous people now who move over from engineering to economics, and I find it kind of interesting do you, why do you think economics is attractive to someone in engineering? No, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. For me, it was when you graduate from engineering, your engineering job is to look at Excel spreadsheets, you know, and, and do, some, do some really basic statistics on Excel spreadsheets. That's all you do as an engineer. Everyone is like, because I know a lot of friends of mine that are, engineers who, are, who have engineer uh, jobs and whatnot. And they tell me, you know, I never, ever, ever, ever have taken an integral in my job. You know, everything is Excel, everything is Excel. Like you gotta look at the machines, make, make the machines are working, but I've never actually built a machine or I never do some fancy engineering stuff as I was promised back uh, when I was doing my bachelor's. So I feel like economics is attracted to engineers because all of a sudden, all these calculus that you learn in your engineering career, you're applying it to actual data. You're actually doing like mathematical modeling with, with it. You know, you're actually doing like Lagrange. You're actually using Lagrangians. You're using Laplace transformations. You're using all these calculus that you learn and you were supposed to apply it in your engineering career. You're actually doing it in economics. That's why people get attracted to it. They feel like they are going to be using the knowledge that they learn and they're going to be applying it instead of just sitting on a desk looking at Excel spreadsheets, which for what I know, for what I did also when I was working, that's all you do as an engineer. It's like, there is no actual of doing machines and stuff like that. So that's, that's what I think is the appealing factor from an engineer to move to, to economics. Yeah, I think that's a common misunderstanding about economics is that there's no math involved when economics is all math calculus you know higher level calc two three and four linear algebra and one time i had somebody ask me like when i was in the first year of the phd oh so how much of what you're learning is just theory and how much of it is actual math and i was like what like everything i'm learning is math everything is math all the theory is rooted in math and we're constantly doing calculus every day and especially in your research, when you're developing these models, they're based on this theory, which is based on various calculus concepts. And I mean, I was never an engineer, so I've never worked in the engineering field, but I can see how that would be upsetting to learn all this calculus in undergrad and then not really apply it in the field. And so I can see why somebody like you and I, where we love calculus, we love writing out those models, mm -hmm. how it would be disappointing to go into a field and not get to apply that. So now I can understand why economics would be attractive to someone in engineering. What do you think overlaps aside? So there's calculus and all the math that 
overlaps between economics and engineering, but what other things do you find overlaps between the two fields? As an engineer, you have to do a lot of economic assessments on the stuff you're kind of designing or working at. So that's, that's one of the things that overlaps a lot. You know, there's, you find a lot of engineers that are doing these economic models of whatever planning they're doing on, on their engineering fields that sometimes they don't have any idea how to do it. You know, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to implement some risk analysis on this stuff and whatnot. And it's the same with economists. When you're doing some sort of modeling for like a client or something, you got to put into like the perspective of an engineer, you know, what is the stuff that is going to drive your costs in your business? What are the stuff that, the stuff that you will need to replace as you move on with your business or whatever machine you're using? Like, so you gotta you kind of gotta be thinking as an engineer, as an economist. And when you're an engineer, you gotta think as an economist. So it's like, yeah, I can build this stuff, but is is it gonna be feasible? Is it gonna produce like any revenue from it? Or is it gonna be all cost? You know, like you gotta you gotta like do that uh, overlapping between thinking as an engineer or thinking as an economist in both fields. So that's I feel like that's the overlap. That's the middle ground that both fields have. I think the economic assessments are huge. Looking at problems from an economic framework of mind, mm-hmm. yeah, I can see how that's 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 applicable in the engineering field. Um, what skills uh, did you learn while you were an engineer that you carried over uh, into economics? The main thing I learned uh, from engineering that I uh, moved to economics is to look at these kind of these of things, you know, the, the small drivers of a of a model because if, as an engineer you gotta always be looking at all those small factors that can alter the design for example as a mining engineer we work a lot of designing mines and whatnot but we gotta look at all these smaller factors that can affect the design of the mine that can potentially kill people because if you're not designing the, the, the mine correctly it can collapse and it, it could be a major catastrophic event that safety factor that you uh, use when you're designing uh, a mine or you're designing a machine, that kind of that safety factor, I apply it to economics as well. Because when I'm, I'm working in my research, I need to think of a safety factor, you know, like I'm being really optimistic with my calculations. And as an engineer as well, like if you're really, if you're being really optimistic, you gotta be like more pessimistic on it. You gotta design stuff thinking that it's gonna collapse. So you gotta put a safety factor on it. So that safety factor that is small little details that we were taught to look at. And that's the stuff I translated here into economics. You know, when I'm doing some economic modeling and doing some like uh, simulations and whatnot, I always try to put that safety factor into account. You know, like I'm this, I'm doing this modeling with a very optimistic kind of view. But if I put a safety factor, if I'm being more pessimistic, these are the actual numbers, you know, I like always work with a safety factor because that safety factor goes into account those little details that you're not seeing, those little things that you're not seeing, that safety factor is going to capture it. That's the thing I learned in engineering that I'm using in economics. That's a really interesting perspective. You know, I didn't think about that, but you're so right. Like you have to be your biggest pessimist of your work, but at the same time, you have to be your greatest optimist because you have to be the biggest pessimist to make sure you, you know, figure out what's missing from your model, what's omitted, what's going on, what are these tiny little factors that I'm not including, and you Mm -hmm. have to be that 
biggest pessimist to improve your model. But at the same time, you also have to be the greatest optimist because mm -hmm. if you don't believe in your work, then nobody else is and definitely yeah. not your audience or your students or your advisor. But you have to be pessimistic, which right. is a really hard role to play. And I can see how being an engineer, you learn how to be pessimistic because you can have these horrible, like you said, catastrophic events mm -hmm. occur as a flaw of your work. Mm -hmm. And in economics, we don't have, you know, high stakes like that. We don't have yes. catastrophic events, but it's that same idea of keeping in mind all the tiny little details that go into a model. So yeah, that's a that's an interesting um, perspective. What was difficult about switching from, and not only you switch from engineering to economics, but you switch from the private sector to academia, which is a big switch for people. So what was difficult about that? The difficulty from engineering to economics was terminology. All this terminology that you guys use, like diminishing marginal benefits, uh, substitutes, complements. All this stupid jargon that my students get frustrated with. Yes, yes. Price takers, <laughs> benevolent planners, uh, you name it, market price, uh, perfectly competitive markets. All those terms, all those terms that I was like, I, I don't understand any of these terms. I understand the math, you know, I understand how it works. But if you asked me to explain it to a freshman, I was like, yeah, I have zero idea. It's like, I've never seen it before. And now that I'm teaching uh, principles of, of macroeconomics, I kind of learning those terminology on, on an easy level than when I started the PhD program. Because when I started the PhD program, I learned all this stuff on steroids like inflation on steroids with a lot of math <laughs> in it and i'm like this is crazy and now that i'm teaching what inflation is to students in simple terms i'm like oh this makes sense you know but <laughs> everything on steroids and all of a sudden like the simple terminology i'm like okay i, I see i see i see how it works you know <laughs> That's how I explain my PhD to people when they ask me what I do. I'm like, it's Econ 101 on steroids for five yes. years. Yes, yes, totally, totally. I was like, that was the hardest part for me is to learn all the terminology and kind of learn it on a basic level, you know, because I never took all these Econ, intro to Econ classes that I'm teaching because somehow I learned it all in steroids and I'm like, oh, you're going to like have all this crazy knowledge and kind of make it simple for first year business majors to understand. So that's kind of, it's been helping me. And that was the hardest part for me to learn. Then the second part of your question, what was it? Could you repeat it? So the second part of my question was, how was it switching from private sector to academia? How oh, difficult yes. was it? Oh, it was horrible. <laughs> it was a horrible, <laughs> it was a horrible transition. Sorry. Yeah, it was horrible because in the private sector, you make a lot of money. Like, there is no comparison. There is no comparison. <laughs> like from working in San Francisco, making like Bay Area salaries to coming back to school and making a grad student salary. I was like, <laughs> yeah, that's, I was like no. that's rough. No, that's rough. Making a grad student salary is already rough as it is, but having to go down from a San Francisco salary to a grad student salary, ugh, I can't imagine. That must have been really hard. Yeah, it was pretty hard. Like I was... I was crying for the first couple months. I was like, "Oh yeah, we all." Yeah. Stuff, so I'm like, "This is this is a joke, right? Someone is someone is kidding me, right?" right. <laughs> yeah, we all cry a lot. I'm still yeah, crying. So that's, that was the hardest part for me the the salary reduction. 
That's and that's definitely a huge trade-off for everyone who's finishing their PhD right now who is considering do I want to go into private sector or do I want to go into academia? A huge trade-off that I have been told many 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 times mm-hmm. is your annual income. And we all know that you can make more in the private sector than in academia and that's what I've been told many times and it's something to consider when you're finishing your PhD. But there are also different trade-offs in academia and benefits and flexibility and lifestyle that mm-hmm. are worth it to a lot of people. Like for me, the flexibility is worth it, which is why I like academia. But I completely understand the pain of not making a lot of money. It sucks. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does sucks. It sucks. And, uh, you, you, as you were mentioning, like the flexibility that academia gives you is, is crazy, you know, because you have these nine-month contracts, something like that, and then you have like all this free time, you know, that you should be spending and doing your research, you know, but I mean, you can be doing your research at a beach in Mexico, you know, it's like chilling right, there, right. family, you take your kids on vacations when they're out of school because you have this, you share the same academic calendar with your kids. So you, you can be with them during vacations and whatnot, but in the private sector, you cannot do that. You don't have the freedom. You have to work like 240 days a week and you only have two weeks of vacation kind of stuff. Right. Which is right. horrible. But in academia, <laughs> you are your own boss kind of stuff. You got to show up to classes. You got to teach. You got to do the research. You have your own schedule. You know, you have more flexibility in academia. And I can totally see that some people appreciate more that freedom than the money aspect of it. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of trade-offs between academia and private sector. Um, but for those of you who are listening, who are thinking of switching from private sector to academia, this is something that you should absolutely keep in mind. The financial trade-offs are a huge component of it. Um, so my next question I have for you, and I forgot to ask this in the beginning, is what is your caffeine of choice? And the reason I ask this of all the grad students that come on the pod is that I think I personally have a strong hy- null hypothesis that caffeine is an indicator of how creative or fancy someone is and I say this because people who drink coffee get so creative and fancy with all their coffee orders and they're I feel like everyone who drinks coffee is like a coffee connoisseur I don't drink coffee I just drink matcha every day and I'm not creative at all I'm the most uncreative person I know and I love green tea so I want to hear from you what is your caffeine of choice to give the audience an idea of what kind of person you are oh my caffeine of choice so I started I started drinking black tea and I brew my own tea so I have a loose leaf tea which is a little bit more like fancy or complicated to do oh you're so fancy I know, I love it, I love it. And it gives you the kick of the thing that you need every day without the anxiety of it. And this is research, you can do, you can do some research on it, like uh, tea has some properties that reduce the anxiety that caffeine produces. So when you're drinking tea, if you're drinking 100 milligrams of caffeine with tea, tea has like amino acid that it balance the anxiety that coffee gets. So when I need to get up in my day and get creative i just do a lot of black tea like a lot of it and then just drink it all like an espresso of tea and i just go and continue my day but yeah i'm I'm more of a tea person i am a hardcore tea person and one of the reasons why i can't drink coffee is because 
A, I get heart palpitations and B, I get massive anxiety and I am already an extremely anxious person. So if I have anxiety, I am like jittering the entire day, cannot focus, cannot lecture to my students. I don't know how I'm amazed that some people can drink like three to four cups of coffee a day. That's like really impressive. For me, that's impossible. I love green tea, but I also love black tea too. I'm a, well, I'm a boba drinker and boba is uh, made with black tea or mostly black tea. So yeah. Um, okay. So you're a fancy black tea drinker. Wow. So I didn't know, I didn't know that about you. I feel like I know you so well and I didn't know this. Yeah, no, I am. I have my teapot and all that stuff. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I need to get that. I need to get on that. Um, you you have to brew the perfect cup of tea. It has, it's, it's an art. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad you found something in grad school that makes you happy in the mornings. Um, I'm curious, what do you miss about engineering? Do you miss it? Or what are some components that you wish you could have brought over into economics? What I miss in engineering is the fact that uh, when you're uh, working on something, when you're designing something, you can actually see it happening. Like you can actually see it built. You know, you can you can touch it. You know, you can like, oh yeah, I designed this uh, ramp that goes from this to this level, or we did this a uh, giant pit. You know, you can go and see your design. Like, oh yeah, I designed that and whatnot. I miss that from from engineering. In economics, it's a little bit more. You cannot see it. It's not tangible. You know, it's it's not like a physical object that you see, but. I haven't had that gratification of seeing like, oh no, I created that or I did that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's the thing I miss is the physical aspect of it. You know, it's the stuff you create, you can touch, you can see it, you can tell your kids, oh, I built that building kind of stuff or oh, that bridge over there is mine. But in, in economics, you don't have that. It's that instant gratification of seeing your hard work physically. Yes, yes exactly. Because if you create a theory or whatever, like for all the people that we study in, in our classes, those guys spend the entire life developing these models and they only saw their results like after years or years or years or years of being implemented, you know, like after years of being tested, they're like, you know, your stuff works. But engineering is an instant gratification. It's like you build it, it's right, it's right there. In economics, it's like, no, you come up with this theory, you got to test it for years and years and years. Yeah. And so like, that's one of the things that I kind of miss of. I think that's a and a big point of for people who are listening who are thinking of going to academia is that and research is that research is a very slow process, very mm-hmm. very slow. It takes an incredibly long time to get to the point where you can actually present some decent results, and yeah. that can yeah. be really yeah. annoying. Yeah, like I've been working on this one paper for almost a year now, and I am still struggling with you know presenting a causal identification of results. And that is, can be pretty frustrating. And I think working in the private sector, it's different because you have deadlines. You need to deliver to the client by this date, a tangible deliverable. Whereas in academia, there's some people I know who have worked on the same paper for nine plus years. Mm -hmm. And like some people who take like eight years to do a dissertation because some things just take that long. You know, there's a reason why we don't have the cure to cancer. It's because it takes such a long time to produce high yeah, quality research. Everything has to be peer reviewed. You yep. have to have like a million sources of information. It's just, it's a long time. It's a it's long a- time. Yeah, so that can be tough. I can see how you would miss that about engineering. Mm-hmm. I would miss that too. How do you apply um, the critical thinking skills that you learned in engineering to economics? 
for example, when I'm teaching classes and when I'm uh, doing some uh, math problems in class and whatnot, I always use the same steps that we use in engineering. When I was doing my engineering uh, bachelor's degree, there's a, this standard of how to solve problems in engineering that you first read the problem. After you read the problem, you got to find out what are, what, are the, what are the variables that you have that were given. So you have like the given and you list all the givens, all the variables that are given. And then you list the find. What is it that you need to find? Like, oh, you need to find X, Y, and Z stuff. And then after that, you write, what formulas could I use? You write down the formulas that you think you can use. Then after that, you, you write the solution. You know, you put all these, the given, the formulas, and you find stuff that, that are missing, you know, that the problem asks you to find. So I've been, I've been following those steps that I learned in engineering. This is how you solve the problem. You first read it, you understand what is given, what is missing, what is asking you, what formulas you have, and then you start solving it. You have to do it in that process, in that order, in order for you to come up with a, a like a cost-effective solution, you know, because you're not spending a lot of time rereading the problem, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you do that in that order, it's gonna, you're gonna find the solution quicker, per se. So in, every time I'm teaching in class, when I'm doing an example, I do the same process. I read the problem with these kids and I underline the stuff that is giving, the underline that is missing, what the problem is asking, that's really important. What is it asking? And then I start doing the math and people like it. People in economics, my students like that process. Like, oh, I like how you solve the problems. And when I'm like, yeah, that's thanks to engineering. <laughs> I'm sure the students really enjoy that. I, I like that you brought that over, this a standard, clean way of solving problems because I found in my own classes each professor has their own especially in economics each professor mm -hmm. has their own style of solving something and yes. it can really toss students through a spin if mm -hmm. each method of solving a problem like varies dramatically based on who's teaching it mm -hmm. so I can see how that standard way is is pretty helpful to your students what would you say to someone who is thinking of switching fields from engineering to economics what kind of advice would you give them I will say do not panic, you know, do not overstress <laughs> <laughs> with all this information. That's my usual go-to. <laughs> I will tell myself to trust the math, you know, just you, you have the math equipped to you. All you need to do is to learn the terms, you know, you, you got to learn the terminology and you got to learn how to apply the terminology. After that, the math is the same, you know, the math is just the same in, in, here and on Mars, on everywhere in space, <laughs> you know, you have the same math, this is the same laws of physics. Just keep chill, you just gotta learn the terminology and eventually everything will click, you know? Eventually you're gonna go to a point that economics and engineering merge together, you know, it's like, Phew. but you gotta fill the gap first and that, that filling the gap is gonna, it's gonna be painful, it's gonna be stressful, but once, you fill the gap is you're gonna find a, a really beautiful uh, relationship between the two. You know, like a really a, uh, symbiotic relationship between the two of them. You know, like both of them go hand with hand, and it's just a matter of filling the gap. I need to have that quote on a T-shirt. Math is the same here as it is on Mars. That's really funny. I really like that. It yeah. is, it is, it is. <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, the math is the same, but a lot of the jargon and that gap, like you said, you just need to fill the gap. Don't freak out, you know, chill out. Very difficult for me to do. Keep it chill. I don't know what that what that means. Yeah. 
but it's but it's important to do. What do you wish you did to prepare before switching fields? Take intro economics classes. <laughs> you know, number one thing I wish I would done. You know, take that intro to macroeconomics, intro to microeconomics. You know, I should taken those those classes. That would have helped me a lot because I was just going back and forth, back and forth into between intro, intermediate, and the PhD stuff. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, I feel like I was learning all the stuff I was supposed to learn on a bachelor's degree in economics. At the same time, I was learning all this PhD stuff. I was that that was really overwhelming. You know, it's like I was trying to learn four years of, of bachelor's in economics and this year of PhD, all of it in one go. You know, it's like boom, let's go. This bunch of information you got to put into your brain. So I wish I would have taken a more intro economics classes when I was uh, mining engineering. Yeah, that's funny. So I wish I took more calculus and math classes before I started this PhD because that was my weakness. I didn't take Calc 3 and 4 and that really hurt me. And yeah, but taking the intro to econ classes, I can see how that would help because just to learn like the terminology marginal cost, marginal this, marginal price, like all those little those little things that come into play that make a huge difference in your understanding. Okay, well, thanks for talking with me today. I had a great conversation. This was a fun time, and I really appreciate all of your input and advice. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate uh, you inviting me to the podcast. And you told me that you're going to release this podcast on my birthday, so... <laughs> No promises, but I'm going to I'm going to try my best. This is a birthday present to me, so I, I love <laughs> it. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is Healthonomics. For more, go to healthonomics.co, where you can comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. I'm your host, Aina Katsikas. Thanks for listening. Thank you.